An idiom is a saying. It's something that we find commonly true. It's something we hold to. It's something we repeat often. And even as far back as 1639, John Clark had a collection of what he called these proverbs, a a collection of proverbs. And one of the foremost proverbs that he has is what you probably use often too, seeing is believing. Seeing is believing. Now you'll notice the title of my message this morning is Believing is Seeing, and I know you're concerned about me that I'm dyslexic, but I'm not dyslexic. (laughs) Seeing is believing. And the idea behind this statement, this proverb, this idiom, is that I want to have evidence. I want to see it. I want to hold it. I want to see concrete evidence before I'm going to believe that that's really true. It's the way we're wired. It's the way we function. And even secular minds will refer back to the case statement of Thomas. They will call him St. Thomas. Of course, every believer is a saint, but uh, they refer back to Thomas. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to, to give that brief account. It's in the Gospel of John, but further on toward the end. And this is after something has been stated that is so incredible, so beyond what people would ever believe, is that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He'd been dead three days. He rose from the dead, and now he was traveling through Galilee and speaking And people were having a hard time believing it. Now, there are things in life that all of us have a hard time believing. Good things, true things. It's just hard to believe. And we want evidence of that. We want to see it. We want to to have something tangible to be able to hold in our hands. And so Thomas is the case statement, the classic statement. And so in John 20, verses 24 and 25, and I have these text up here that you can see, It says, now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, this is is what Thomas means, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now, you're talking about one of the 12. For three and a half years, they'd been with Jesus. They had seen him perform miracles. He had healed the blind, caused them to see. Lame people were walking again. Lepers were cleansed. And even they witnessed what we're looking at this morning in John chapter 11, the raising of Lazarus after he had been dead in the grave four days. But... It's being rattled. He is, he's, he's struggling to believe. And so he says, I want to see the evidence of this. And, so, of course, the following account is in verse 26. It says, eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them, although the doors were locked. And Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him. And we don't have any account that Thomas ever reached out and touched. But he answered and he said, My Lord and my God. And this was in a, 
attesting to his deity. This is God. He was shocked. He was, he was rebuked by this. Then Jesus said to him, and this is really the lesson that he is giving. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed or happy are those who have not seen and yet they believed. Now this is really the central idea that we find going to the, to the end of the Gospel of John in, in chapter 20 and verses 30 and 31. I'll just put this up here because this is the whole idea of the message of John's Gospel. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Two primary messages that Jesus had for the world. The message that he is God, and by believing in him, you will have life. Eternal life, abundant life. So here's the point. Come back to our thesis statement, which is not original with me. It's just this is what Jesus is saying. If, if Who's dyslexic? <laughs> It's not seeing as believing. That's what the world, that's how the world functions. That's how you and I naturally function. But the key is this, believing is seeing. Believing is seeing. And we'll see the unfolding of this drama in the raising of Lazarus in John chapter 11. It's a, it's a powerful, emotional, personal story that really is a precursor to Jesus himself being resurrected from the dead. This is happening just days, probably a week and a half before the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have this event with Lazarus found in John chapter 11. And I'd like to, for us to pick up on that in verse 38. So if you have your Bible, you can follow along with me on the screen too. In John 11 verse 38. It says, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Typically, in, this was a small town of Bethany, just about two miles east of Jerusalem. Most people were buried in caves. Uh, the, the stone was soft. They'd see the cave go in, and they'd carve out a ledge, put the body, wrap it up, <clears throat> and then put a stone to protect uh, the body from animals and uh, to keep the smell in, in there. But all of this happened on the very day the person died. Uh, they did not uh, go through processes and that sort of thing. But as we described, uh, this, this town, this village, it was during the time of Passover, was on the way to Jerusalem. So it was a very crowded place, many people there during this time. And it says that Jesus, coming here in on this scene... Uh, Mary, Martha, Lazarus are his dear personal friends. Lazarus is dead. He has been dead for four days. He comes into this time of intense mourning. And as we described in Eastern culture, it was very vocal, very loud. There was weeping, there was wailing, there was times of testimonies, but very emotional and very expressive time. A lot of grieving, a lot of people, a lot of chaos. And it says that Jesus was deeply moved. Now, it also says again, because in verse 33, it says he was deeply moved. And then in verse 35, as we've noted, 
that that is the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. So deeply moved, he weeps with them. And why is he weeping? Why, why is Jesus weeping? I think he first is feeling the pain, the grief of his dear friends, Mary and Martha. Uh, those that he loves are hurting. And he felt their pain. He was able to feel their pain. It was genuine. It was real. And part of his deep emotional grief was the sorrow he felt for their sorrow. I think secondly, in a bigger scope, he felt the full effect of sin upon the world. Because here you have sickness, you have death, you have pain, you have all of this tragedy, you have mourning and you have weeping, and this was never intended. God created a perfect world. He created this to be full of joy and happiness and peace and relationship, untainted by sin. And I think that a great deal of his grief was because he saw the effect of sin upon the entire world. But I also believe he was deeply moved because, and, and he was grieved because of their continual disbelief. He has performed many miracles. In fact, at the end of John, it says if we were to, to put them in books, the world couldn't even contain all the books of the things that he's done. So he has performed miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. And, and he comes in on this scene, and they're weeping, and they're crying. And it's really evidence that they don't believe. They really don't believe. They believe that if he would have been there, he would have made him well. A sick man, he would make well. But they really don't believe. And so their doubt is also causing him a great, great emotion. And so when it says deeply moved, those words are interesting because it describes an emotional outburst. You know, you know that sometimes when, you, when you're going to cry or sob, it just kind of just blurts out. It just blurts out. The word is also used to cause a shudder, just a shudder. It's like Jesus comes in, he views all of this, and he just shudders and, and blurts out in emotion. And from that, from that emotion that is built up in him of what he sees, he sees the sorrow of his dear friends, he sees the effects of sin, he sees their continued, they still really don't believe. That out of this comes a very disturbing command. And we find that in the next verse, verse 39. It says, Jesus said, take away the stone. Now, that would be disturbing. <laughs> that would be like uh, a person has been dead, decomposing in the casket for, for this period of time, and, and you say, open the casket. Open the casket. Take away the stone. And you can imagine how quiet it got around there. And the command, I think, why is he doing this? Why, why is he saying, I want you? In other words, he's, he's asking these people. He's not doing it himself. He doesn't say, okay, stone, roll away. He's saying, you, go move that stone. 
He's calling them to put their hands on it and to move it, actually to be physically involved in what he's doing. That'd be very disturbing. (laughs) Up close, all of this crowd around, weeping, wailing, sorrowful, not believing. Roll away the stone. And what he's doing is he is exposing their unbelief. He's exposing their unbelief. And I don't think that that Jesus can really help us until he confronts us. You see, unbelief is a sin. We don't think of it as, well, I didn't steal or kill anybody or didn't run anybody over. I I I wasn't even speeding. (laughs) When you don't believe, it's a sin. It's probably the worst of sins, not to believe. Now, they do believe to a point. They do believe he's Jesus. They do believe he's sent from God. There are a lot of things they believe. But deep down, they really don't believe. And I think that that's, that's the way you and I can get to be. We believe in a lot of things about God. Sure, sure. But it's those impossible things that we think, not going to happen. You have stuff in your life like that? It's not going to happen. Too impossible. And so you even really quit praying about it. You quit asking God about it. You quit even hoping for it. And it's really not even in the realm of your possible thinking. And that's, that's where we find these people. They're not even thinking that Jesus might roll away the stone and raise him from the dead. None of them are thinking that. They're not saying, oh, Lord, roll away the stone. You're going to raise him from the dead. Because here, one of the most spiritual people in the... You think, okay, one of the sisters is going to say something. And it it is Martha. He says, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, Lazarus, said to them, Lord, by this time there will be... And literally the word is a stench. I like the way the old King James... I don't read that as much anymore, but those of you familiar with this part, it says, Lord, he stinketh. I just laugh when I read that. Lord, he stinketh. I don't think that's the way she said it. That's an Elizabethan language. But immediately, she, she's thinking, we've got all these people here. They're, they're coming to our home. They're our guests. We're weeping. And then you're going to have me roll away the stone, and there is going to be a stench. Now, a couple things what she's doing. Well, think about this. She is arguing with God, isn't she? She's protesting, Lord, if you do this, and she's also teaching him something. She's informing him because he, he just doesn't, he's not up to speed. Now, you and I are the same way. You and I are exactly the same way. As spiritual as Martha is, she's arguing with Jesus, and she is looking on a very common a ground level. She is not not thinking of what he might do, and she is she is trying to tell him something that he just doesn't know. Remember someone saying to me before, has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? Well, nothing has ever occurred to God. God doesn't learn anything. He doesn't find things out. You're not going to tell Jesus and go, oh, ah. Oh. Can you imagine that when you go through a trial, difficulty in your life, and, and uh, 
And, and this is the, honestly, this is the way we function. You think that, that something happens that you didn't expect and that God's up there going, oh, I did not see that coming. Step two, he's up there going, oh, now what are we going to do? That's not God. That's you. That's me. That's not God. So Mary is really <laughs> treating him like, you know, you don't know what you're doing. You don't realize this is going to stink. This is going to be an embarrassment. And they question him. If we really understood about God, the character of God, we'd find several things. And I think that if you look back to Mary and Martha's interaction with him, particularly when he was coming into town, and, and I'm talking about spiritual-minded people. And, and this morning, I think I'm addressing people who have spiritual interest. okay? First of all, they questioned his awareness. God, you don't understand what I'm going through. Now, I, you can say that on a human level, there are people that don't understand what you're going through. He knows exactly what you're going through. He knows, he knows more of what you're going through than you know what you're going through. There's a lot of stuff you still don't know about what you're going through. He knows everything about what you're going through. But they doubted that because she's telling him something that she thinks he doesn't know. Second thing is they question if he cares. That's probably the most hurtful thing that you would do to someone is to say, I don't even think you care. And, and I can be honest with you that there are times in my life where I feel like, you know, there's, I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm waiting. Hello, hello, hello. Does God care? Does God care? Well, stop and think about this for a moment. He who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. I mean, does he care? There is no one who has ever cared for you like Jesus. Now, the fact that he hasn't come to your immediate response or respond in the way that you thought should be is, is typically the reason why we think you don't care. He does care. We see from his emotion that he cares. It says when he walked into Jerusalem, he said he beheld the city and he wept over it. There is no one who understands you like Jesus. There is no one who cares for you like him. And finally, there is no one who's more capable to solve your problem. It's like it was asked this in the time of Abraham, is anything too hard for the Lord? Okay, what, what can God not do? What can, if he created the heavens and the earth, every time we draw a breath, every time your heart beats, you think how many hearts are in here? And how many of them are beating this morning? I think most of them are. Okay, every one of that, those sustained heartbeats, every time you draw a breath, is by God. He has all power. He is omnipotent. So, number one, he knows. Number two, he cares. Number three, he's able. Those three, those three characteristics or qualities of God, Martha at one point, was not believing because they said, Lord, if you'd been here, if you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. If you, if you really cared, you would have been here. <laughs> so they're doubting the 
cares or doubting that he knows or doubting that he's able now to do anything by not even thinking about that. So he exposes this. This is part of this roll away the stone, go roll away the stone. He's exposing their unbelief. He's also exposing the consequences of unbelief. Okay, let's say you're going through a trial, a test, a difficulty, and you're like this. You doubt that God understands what you're going through. You doubt that he really cares, and you doubt that he's able to do anything about it. We've all been there. What does that do to your life? What does that do to you practically? Well, I'll tell you what it does. It it brings pain, sorrow, hopelessness, fear, further doubt, frustration, anger, impatience, sleeplessness, regret, resentment, cynicism, bitterness. I can tell you this, that when you don't believe, your life goes like this, down, down, down. Depression, discouragement, heartache, disappointment, fear. We get into a panic. We worry. We're anxious. That's what happens. So he's exposing not only the fact you're not believing, and this is why when I'm walking into Bethany right now, I hear all this weeping and all this wailing and all this crying and all this explaining. is because you don't believe. The consequences and the result of not believing are very painful. And this is what has caused him his pain. So when you see someone and they say, do you believe in God? Yes, I believe in God. Life is just, I'm going crazy. God doesn't care. He doesn't understand this. I don't think God can do anything about it. You don't believe. The truth is you don't believe because the, you can say what you want. You can say what you want. But the truth is you don't believe. If you were to ask Mary and Martha, do you believe in Jesus? Ah, yes, we believe. Lord, we believe. (laughs) No, you don't. You don't believe he understands. You don't believe he cares. And you don't believe he's able to do anything about this present situation. That is the truth. And what is the result? Sorrow, weeping, same way for us. So he continues in verse 40 with these words, did I not tell you? John 11, verse 40 says, Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see? (laughs) I didn't say, if you see, you will believe. I didn't say that. That's what the world says. Jesus said, Did not I tell you that if you believed, you would see? And he says, You would see the glory of God. What is the glory of God? When I, I kind of think back, the glory of God to me is probably the immensity of the sum of all of his attributes and all of his works that would, that would cause every one of us to stand in awe of who he is. He is almighty. He is holy. He is loving, compassionate, tender. He is omnipresent. It's all of his attributes, all of his works, all of his glory and his splendor. He says, if you believe you'll see. If you don't believe, you're not going to see this. And that is the point. It's a reminder that the world's approach is and will continue to be, and your natural response is, show me the money. 
Seeing is believing. I want it right here. I want to hold it. I want to handle it. I want concrete evidence before I believe. Jesus says, it's not the way I work. It's not the way Christianity works. Everything about Christianity is counterculture. No, not seeing is believing. Believing is seeing. I want you to believe. So you think about, what is, how, does God, how does God display his glory? Have you thought about that before? In Psalm 19, verses 1 through 3, I'll put this up here. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. In other words, you just walk outside and look around. God's heavens, his creative work, expresses his glory. Now, there are many ways God expresses who he is and what he does. But what's the best way he does it? What is the most perfect way God shows us his glory? It's in the person of his son. And Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, these are, these are incredible verses. These are incredible verses. This is how Hebrews starts off. It says, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Now, this is how he describes him. Who he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God. That's Jesus. And the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Wow, that is an incredible statement. He is the radiance of the glory of God, Jesus is. He is the exact imprint of his nature. And he, Jesus, upholds the whole universe by the word of his power. That is an amazing statement. So here's the the million-dollar question. How can I believe in something I can't see? That's That's where we get tested. He's asking us to believe in something we can't see. I can't see God. I can't see the Holy Spirit. I can't see his presence. How do I believe? This is what Jesus is asking you to do, is believe what you cannot see, and then you'll see. Two ways, and I, and I hope that, that these will stick with you, because to me, these, these have been kind of like the, the, the rails to keep the train on the track of my life for the last 40 years. His words and his works. His words and his works. His words, all of the promises of God, he pours out to us. He teaches us. He promises us. He tells us. And, and Jesus was for three and a half years giving to these disciples his promises, his words. I'm telling you the truth. I'm speaking to you the truth. And I find this, that when I neglect my time in this word, I start to falter. I do. Because every morning getting back to what he has said is true, because my feelings will run the other way. I want to say, I want to see it before I believe it. I want to hold it. Again, just like Mary and Martha. So his words, and secondly, his works. What has God done that you have seen in the past? Typically, we look at the future, and we worry. 
That's typically where we worry. We don't really worry about the past. That's done. And we're really not worried about the present. We're worried about tomorrow. What's going to happen? What's going to happen? What's going to happen? Okay? Two things to stabilize your life. His words and his works. What has God done in the past? And this is what, this is what God said to the children of Israel. Remember these things. Tell them to your children. Repeat them to the children over and over and over. Tell them the works of God, the works of God, the works of God, what I have done in the past. Because as I have done these things in the past... I will be your God in the future. And we forget. We forget. Diane and I were having this conversation yesterday morning. And it's kind of nice in our house. You know, it's just kind of, most mornings are kind of quiet. We get up, you know, we're, we're empty nesters. And we have conversations. And it's, it's nice to have a wife who's got a master's in theology. <laughs> Sometimes you can say it can be a little intimidating. But I found this, that, that you could have more degrees than a thermometer and not be a spiritual person. I've known a lot of people who have got degrees and are not spiritual people, but the thing about with Diane, she's always in the Word, in the Word, in the Word, and applying it, sharing things with me, so we'll share things together. And so she, she said, I'm, she's reading Psalms 77, 11, and 12. And she said, here's what the psalmist said. Remember my works, consider my works, and meditate on my works. Think about that. Remember what I've done. Consider what I've done and meditate on it. In other words, just keep going over and over it again. And what that will do to you, when we, we started talking about our lives the last 36 years that we've been married, is how God has worked all through and provided for us all the way through. Like, wow. And when you begin to recount all that he has done, it builds up your faith. It's not just his words telling you this is true. You have found this to be true. But the problem is when we don't talk about that and remember together and consider what he's done and meditate upon us, we forget all that. Have we forgotten how God has all these years provided for us and blessed us? And so, so what does that what does that make you do? How, when you start to realize all that God's done through your life for you, how do you respond? And this is when we move to the next verse, verse 41, when he lifts up his eyes and says, thank you. I mean, immediately, right? He says, roll away the stone. Okay, the stone's being rolled away. People are just like, oh, the ones that aren't moving it are like, what's going to happen? They're still in fear. They're still not believing. And Jesus lifts up his eyes and says, thank you. For what? How do you thank him for something that hasn't happened? You know, the scripture teaches us, 1 Thessalonians 5, give thanks in everything. But Jesus is thanking his father because he hears him. He has access to his father. He has a relationship with his father. He is constantly talking to his father. And he's thanking his father for what is about to happen. Now, that takes faith, doesn't it? Because I'm thinking, okay, Lord, I'm thanking you for about what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> but I trust in the character of God. He's always good. He always knows. He's always powerful. He's always there. I thank him. 
for what he's going to do. Because And his words and his works always attest to that. So before anything happens, you're in the middle of your crisis, okay? I'm, I'm talking about the, the flashpoint, the, the, the crisis moment. You're, you're in this, and the last thing you want to do is to sing a song of thanksgiving to God. But Jesus does. Because he knows his Father. And if you knew your Father in the middle of your crisis, you would give him thanks for about what he's about to do. Lord, I don't know what you're about to do right now, but I know it's going to be good. <laughs> so here's what he says. So they, they took away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes. He said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. So he's not praying for himself. He's, he's uttering this prayer of thanksgiving so that these people around might hear him and believe. I'm thanking you, Father, for what you're about to do. Can you do that? You can. You can. You look at his words. You look at his works. You look at his character. You can give thanks. There's a great verse in 1 John, and I put it up on the screen, 1 John chapter 5, verse 14. This is a, it shows that we can do the same thing. It says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, and whatever we ask, we know that we have certainly received the request that we've asked of him. In other words, when you call to him, you pray in his will, you ask of him, he's going to answer in his will. So we come to the final part. We've been waiting for this for three weeks. <laughs> Lazarus is coming out. From the prayer of thanksgiving, Jesus immediately moves to commanding Lazarus out of the tomb. The miracle we've been waiting for in, in the text is John eleven forty three. In 44, it says, when he had said these things, in other words, the prayer of thanksgiving, he goes, I thank you, Lord. As soon as he, he says, I thank you, Lord. I thank you, Lord. Lazarus, come out. And his voice was this booming, powerful. I can only imagine, because he had spoken to thousands of people at times. The 5,000 that he taught, including women and children, people estimate upwards to 20,000 people without microphones. So I imagine this is a thundering, powerful, startling voice that has got everybody shaking. It's one of those times I, I wish I could have been there. I wish I could have been there because I've been I mean, just like everybody else. Uh, you know, you're thinking, I'm looking at this tomb and I'm thinking, what's, what's going to come out? Is gonna, something going to come out? He has commanded Lazarus. And I think... It's interesting, one commentator wrote, he names him Lazarus because if he didn't, everybody else would be coming out of all their tombs too. <laughs> and the man who was dead came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips. This is how they prepared them for burial and his face wrapped with a cloth, much like what Jesus was, same way Jesus would, would be buried and wrapped in a week and a half. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. 
Now, there are two commands here at the end. Lazarus come out. They're just stunned. Can you imagine how quiet it was? You go from all this weeping and wailing and sobbing and sorrow and all that. When he says, Lazarus, come out. Stones roll away. Lazarus, come out. And then he's coming out. And they're standing around. He says, unbind him. It's like, that's the obvious, okay? He needs a little help. I'm sure he's doing the shuffle, you know. Lazarus is coming out. And, you know, we laugh now, but you can see a, a mummy coming out. He's shuffling. And, and, and it's like the obvious, hello, those who loved him, are you going to go unwrap him, let him out? Don't just stand around. But I think it's beautiful, these two commands. The first command, Lazarus come forth. In other words, he resurrects him. Only God can do that. That's God. They're the, the eternal, spiritual, natural, unnatural things that take place. Only God can do. And there's so much in the middle of your crisis and your difficulty that only God can do. You felt at an impasse with your present circumstance, with your health, with your finances, with your job, with your relationships. You feel like, I can't do this. You're right. There are a lot of things you can't do, but God can do. You recognize that. But the second command is what you can do and you should do. And there is a responsibility that comes alongside of the, 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 the divine command of God for Lazarus to come forth. He resurrects him, but he gives to us the responsibility, unwrap him. Now, what happens if we just kind of sit there, I'm not touching him. Well, he doesn't get unwrapped and people don't see. Now, what do the unwrappers get credit for? They didn't do anything. All they did was reveal what God had done. And that's what you and I do. We show, we unwrap what God does. Our testimonies in our lives, that's what we do. We roll away the stone. We don't perform the miracle. We unwrap Lazarus so the world can see the glory of God, so the world can see the evidence of His working, so the world can see the truth of this resurrection. But I feel there are too many of us standing along the sidelines and that Jesus is wanting and desiring to do the miraculous things, but our lack of belief and our lack of obedience hinder the gospel message. Did you know this? If you, if you believe, it will always result in actions. That's why in the book of James it talks about obedience, obedience, faith. If you don't have works, if you don't have obedience that follow genuine faith, it's not real. We respond by believing, and the evidence of our believing is unwrapping Lazarus. I don't think he's asking too much, do you? I don't think for him to say, okay, folks, I'm going to raise this guy from the dead. Now, would you roll the stone away? Okay, Lazarus, come forth. Okay, would you unwrap him? I don't think it's too much to ask. Basically, as Easter comes and, and the whole, whole world celebrates Easter, oftentimes missing the meaning, we have an opportunity to unwrap the greatest miracle 
ever has ever taken place is when Jesus Christ rose from the dead. It is coming. So we come to the end of this message, and you may ask this because I always put this on the, my last page. What's the point? <laughs> What's the point? Here's the point. It's not seeing is believing. It's believing is seeing. That's the point. And Jesus asked in verse 26, he says, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you believe? Well, they all said they did. Our takeaway would be probably the question this morning, the question we have might be, will you start acting like you believe? Will you start acting like you believe? Because none of the people in Bethany were acting like they believed. And Jesus had them roll away the stone to confront that, address that. And in his loving compassion, he was not only showing them a miracle, but he was preparing them for the greatest miracle that was to come. And that was his own resurrection. And that's how he's building their faith and helping them to believe. Let's bow together as we pray. Father, we are so who stand in awe at your greatness, your power to create the world, to raise the dead. But we're also marvel at your incredible love and compassion and your patience with those you love. How you brought these people along with your tender mercy and taught them to believe. And Father, I pray in the midst of our present challenges that we face that you would give us, Lord, the will to act as though we believe that you can raise the dead, that you, that you will fulfill all that you've said. As we consider your words and your works, constantly affirming these things, Lord, increase our faith. And we pray as we look forward to this Easter season, oh, Lord, I think of this whole city, this whole region in Colorado of people that still don't know the wondrous story of Jesus who came into this world, died on the cross for their sins, and rose again to give them eternal life. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us unwrap the beauty of that story. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.